0: You need to be able to to understand science well enough to really get the in-depth understanding of God's creation to understand who God is. Yeah. And so when, when people of faith shun scientific views of the universe, I think that they're shunning a testament by the Lord of who he is through what he has made that's so powerful.
1: All right, welcome in to the Run the Rays podcast. My name is Jason Dennis here with you uh, every week talking about uh, fitness and faith. And we're kind of uh, leveling up a little bit on uh, this episode uh, with some sophistication. We have a scientist, a real-life scientist with us, who has been uh, a leader of the Coca-Cola Space Science Center at Columbus State University here in Columbus, Georgia, for uh, nearly uh, two decades now. And Dr. Sean Cruzen, who's been uh, part of the faculty at CSU, Um, since 1997, full professor of physics and astronomy. Uh, Began his career in science as an amateur astronomer in Colorado, attended the University of Southern Colorado and uh, got his degree in physics there. Did postgraduate work at UNLV, awarded the NASA Space Grant uh, Fellowship to perform research in extragalactic astronomy, which is uh, more impressive than a, a TV broadcast journalism degree, perhaps, I think. Got his Ph.D. from UNLV as well in 1997 and did some research with the Hubble Space Telescope. We're going to talk a little bit about the James Webb Telescope images, how they may be compared to the Hubble uh, from uh, decades ago. And... Um, Just a quick story from from my perspective, I uh, grew up, my dad was kind of in the medical science field. He was... A, uh, a pediatrician and so I heard all these stories um, you know uh, Dr. Cruzen, and he you know I wanted to steer as far away from science as I could you know <laughs> I wanted to get away from that career so uh, so I, I good on you for we uh, sticking with it for, for many decades a little bit more about Dr. Cruzen. He's a six-time nominee for the CSU educator of the year had won that award twice probably deserved it several more times perhaps um, and I uh, got a lot of other awards as well uh, grew up in church he actually served um, in music ministry uh, since he was 17 years old and now is at Northside Christian Church where he's in church leadership leads music on Sunday mornings works with youth ministry and has been on a few mission trips to Mexico and Haiti Uh, and he's married with one son Christian who actually works for axiom as an aerospace engineer and his wife works for the International Space Station at Johnson Space Center as well so thank you so much, Dr. Cruzman for, uh, for coming by WTVM and joining us. I know it's a busy time for you with, uh, with camps for high schoolers, right?
0: We have camps going on. We have a lot of things going on in the summertime. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, kind of wait. Uh, to come visit us in the summertime, because I think maybe it's air conditioning, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, they get out there, they're looking for an activity to do, but it's pretty hot outside, so they start looking for those indoor activities, and they come down to see us. But, Absolutely. But yeah, no, thank you for having me today. It's really it's really good to be here, and uh, and, and I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk about the topics.
1: Yeah, are. and I know you, you've done interviews for TV before, but for, you also have a lot of experience with podcasting, because you are the co-host of Made of Stars podcast with our friend, Wes Carroll, who was a, a guest on my podcast, uh about about a year or so ago, so you are you're, you're used to this kind of you know open dialogue about uh, fun stuff, controversial stuff, all kinds of things.
0: You know, uh, a fun thing when I when I became director of the Space Science Center in 2004, uh, my former boss Carol Rutland, she was doing a radio segment uh, with Scott Miller, and uh, later then you know Wes Carol joined that team and but so when she left in 2004 i jumped in and did that radio spot and you know i was nervous i (laughs) what am i gonna do on this radio spot and the thing just evolved over the years into a a really fun segment uh that we did uh, on radio for for a number of years and then when wes carroll left the station he and i decided to jump into the podcasting world and so we've been doing that podcast ever since but wes and i have have had a, a rapport for a number of years and uh we, our, our our podcast and just our take on the whole thing is it's about space news, but it's a pretty lighthearted look in general at, at all of that stuff. And we just like to have a good time with it. We think that people who like to listen to uh, space news might want to have fun as they're doing it, so so it's a bit of a recreational, a little bit less serious view of uh, current space news.
1: Don't take yourself so seriously, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I need to get I need to get some kind of song for run the race. You guys have one of the best, <laughs> uh, you know, theme songs for Made of Stars, so maybe I can get
0: maybe Wes can sing a song for me. or something. Uh, You know, I'm sure Wes would consider doing that. And, uh, <laughs> and if he does, I'll play piano. I can I can back up on on the. Music there you go, yeah, because yeah, you are you you lead music in church. That'd be
1: great. Um, <laughs> Well, we, uh, we, like I said before, we want to talk about the James Webb telescope because that's, you know, headlines in the news and showing us some just utterly amazing images. Um, also want to talk about your journey um, into science and to faith um, and also the coca-cola space science center because i know you have a passion for educating people of all ages but i want to start with you know it's, it's a little heavy topic i guess but um kind of the old uh debate of science versus god even mm-hmm. if we want to call it that that's maybe overstating it in some sense but um you have you know been have a faith background you also obviously have a long career in science as, as a scientist and looking at the stars um, do you think that you know, science and God, this, this age-old question, do they, do they have to be at odds or can they kind of coexist?
0: Well, so the first thing I would say is this is always going to be within the personal view of whoever is asking this question, right? And so if you want to find reasons to believe in God, I believe that they're out there. If you want to find reasons to be a skeptic, you're going to be able to be to do that, and that. So it's really kind of a personal choice, just like the whole um, experience of faith is a personal decision. And so, so I kind of start there. Uh, the second thing I would say is this: the the fissure between science and faith is actually a very modern phenomenon. Um, it, it, scientific inquiry is is really built into our into our being. We are curious people. Uh, we are a, we are. A, a a civilization from even from ancient times that wants to know more and more about our world. I believe we're created that way. I believe we're created to ask questions. If you look at scripture, the scripture actually tells you to test things. Don't just take things uh, based on the words of others, but actually go and test those things. Well, so that includes issues of the physical world as much as it does uh, issues of faith, testing them against scripture. So, so I, I, I think that the whole, um, the whole being that we, uh, that we are is programmed to ask questions and to try to find information, which is the heart of science. And so, so now, let's bring that into the modern era. The, things that we're, the questions that we're asking uh, about our world, do they support what we understand about the Bible? Right. Or do they contradict what we understand about the Bible? Here's what I would say to that. For anyone of faith who's asking that question, you have to believe two things. Number one, and this, these are people of faith, you believe that God is the author of the Bible, of scripture. The second thing you believe is that God is the author of physical law and all of the, all of the uh, physical parameters that dictate what our world looks like and how it operates. And so if you're finding inconsistencies, between what you read and what you believe is God's testament about spirituality and what you see in the physical world, chances are the problem is with you and your interpretation, right? So you have to understand that if, if if the same author authored the laws of physics and the scriptures, those things are not gonna be inconsistent. So then as you go forward trying to understand both of those things simultaneously, if you're finding conflicts, check your interpretations. Make sure you're understanding uh, the, the, the root words in, in the ancient languages of what you're reading in the Bible. Make sure you have a clear understanding of what physics is saying and not saying about the universe. I, I think that the, the more you look into this, particularly, I'm an astronomer, so I'm not a biologist. I'll, I'll leave evolution for someone else. <laughs> But I think the, the Big
1: Bang Theory and all that. But
0: yeah, we can jump into the Big, th- big, big Bang Theory. So, so what does the Big Bang Theory say? The Big Bang Theory says that the universe was created in a moment of light and energy. What does the scripture say? The scripture says the universe was created in a moment of light and energy. Those two things are not inconsistent. Right. So then when you take that forward and you try to find inconsistencies with that, Make sure that you're staying true to both the science and the scripture because we begin with no inconsistency whatsoever with the modern understanding of how the universe was created. Yeah. And there's you know perceptions
1: out there uh, of people when you when you hear science, um, you think it may be devoid of meaning, devoid of emotion. Is is that true? Because I mean, obviously people are passionate about science mm-hmm. and about astronomy and the stars and how things were created. But you know, is is there's this um, perception that science is like, okay, it's this and it's this alone, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's true. I, I think I think science should be done unemotionally, right? Because what, and, and remember, let's remember this, science is not something done by one person. Science is a cultural right. event, right? So a, a, a single scientist will find a discovery and draw a conclusion from that. But the next step in the scientific process is to put that out among a whole society of other scientists for verification, for, uh, for further conclusions, for possible flaws. And so, so science itself, the animal of science, is something that's done culturally and not by individuals. So there are many, many scientists that I've run into my, in my career who are people of faith. There are many, many scientists that I've run into in my career who are hostile to faith. And, but yet, they all work together through the scientific process to try to winnow down to, to what is and is not verifiable about our world. And so that's what science is. So then people's faith or people's hostility to faith or people's emotions or or their life experiences they stack on that yeah and and so sometimes quite honestly it holds people back it held albert einstein back because albert einstein knew for a fact dead certain that the universe was eternal and unchanging it was called a steady state model but yet his own mathematics, his own investigations were telling him that no, the universe had a moment where it began in a big ball of energy and from that moment forward, it's been expanding and he knew darn good and well, that was not true in his own mind. (laughs) And so therefore he said, "You know, this math I have right here in front of me, it's telling me one thing, but I know something different. So I'm just gonna add this parameter into this mathematical equation to stop all of that expanding and to make the universe be eternal and unchanging. It was called the cosmological constant. So, but then later, it was verified that that wasn't correct. right? <laughs> so the, the universe did actually have a moment of creation. Right. Time began at a certain time. It started to move forward in, the, in expansion. He could have verified that mathematically, but his own prejudices, his own personality, his own predetermined uh, mindset, prevented him from finding that he's he called that the greatest mistake of his career. We all have to be careful when we're doing science, not to bring those kinds of predetermined prejudices into the process. And yet we all do. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, and that's why you, that's literally why you need a, a culture of science out there. That's checking everybody to winnow down to just the facts, as you said, just a moment ago. And, and faith and science, both give us
1: answers to mysteries of the world, of the universe. And, uh, you know, there's science fiction movies that that talk about, you know, there's Interstellar we've seen. There's a movie that, that, you know, has a lot of mixed reviews, Contact, which, you know, deals with uh, science and faith. And you've got, you know, this this press conference where people are asking this pastor uh, to defend this. And and he, you know, so do you feel like from your perspective as somebody who is an astronomer, Um, It leads a uh, a space science center that um, are you, do you find yourself defending science more or defending faith or or maybe
0: neither? (laughs) It it depends (laughs) on if I'm at the university or if I'm at church. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, I have have this conversation on both sides of the fence. It depends on what context I'm sitting in and who I'm talking to. I've had many, many, many conversations with the people at my church about my career. Yes. Right? And so, so it's, it's kind of a funny thing. So when I'm at church, they're like, well, now, just tell me, how can you be a scientist and be a Christian? I don't know if you ever been... How can you be a weatherman and be a Christian? I don't know if that's ever been something that's come up for you, but, 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 it, but it has for me. And so, so you know, I've had those conversations over and over again, yeah. right? and I'm happy to have them. You know, we can talk. Um, Do you find that people are happy with your answers? or are, if Not always. Not, yeah. yeah, not always. Well, I, I think usually they understand at the end of the day that I'm sincere about my faith and so there's enough commonality there that we can just move on. Yeah, yeah. Which, same kinds of conversations occasionally happen with, with my colleagues at the university. More rare, I would say, huh. actually. But, but occasionally it's like, oh, so you go to church but yet you're a scientist. So how do you jive all of that? And so then we have that kind of conversation. But I always come back to the point and I, and I believe this is the most pivotal point in this conversation which is I believe the authors of physical law and of the Bible are the same, the same entity. Yeah. And so, so that's where I begin my journey, so to speak, of, of rectifying all that. I know I'm hearing two sides of an argument. In fact, you know, it, it, it's even written into scripture. The Bible tells us that even without uh, the, the scriptures themselves, that nature speaks so clearly to the existence of God, that men are without excuse. That means to me that you need to be able to, to understand science well enough to really get the in depth understanding of God's creation to understand who God is. Yeah. And so when, when people of faith shun scientific views of the universe, I think that they're shunning a Testament by the Lord of who he is. Through what He has made, that's so powerful that men are held without excuse. So, so my my suggestion to my fellow colleagues of faith is to say, make sure you understand who God really is, because because of the universe that He's made. The heavens declare the glory of God; the skies proclaim the works of His hands. That's in Psalm 19. So you have to look at those things to say, well, what is the what are the heavens telling me? Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they pour forth truth. What am I? Tr- what am I supposed to learn about the nature of who God is based on studying the universe out there in front of you? Because there's a message there. Yeah. It's like a scroll unrolled. And if I'm missing out on that, I'm missing out on the full testament of who God is.
1: Because it talks in the Bible how you know He created. You know, you know, obviously the world created the stars and, you know, and so these things that we see that are amazing about our world. It's you can see that and, and, and at least defend your faith by saying, listen, if, if not for God, how did this happen? You know, this is this is, uh, you know, for, from what, where we stand. It's just an amazing thing. Like even how our, our body human bodies work. It's, it's pretty amazing. You know, it's proof of you know, both, perhaps perhaps. Um, and uh, speaking of that, you know, the uh, some amazing images, you know, We were talking about the James Webb telescope, um, NASA just released, uh, I guess it was just a week ago, these long awaited images, 20, 30 years in the making, and uh, some of the deepest images the universe has ever seen. So before we kind of take a look at some of these specific images, um, from uh, science and maybe faith perspective as well, you know, what is this? What does this mean for us? I mean, are we seeing the universe like we've never seen it before, perhaps?
0: which is amazing. (laughs) Now, think about that. Yeah. This whole business about it, it's a testament of the Lord if you're a person of faith. You read about that in Psalm 19. And now you have an instrument created by science, which is showing you the universe in unprecedented detail in the history of humanity. Yeah. So if that doesn't stir you a little bit, (laughs) maybe check your pulse, right? You're getting to see the 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 universe at its grandest scales and its most distant edge better than humanity has ever been able to see it in the entire history of human beings. That's what the James Webb Space Telescope is allowing us to do. Even Hubble Space Telescope, which was a stunning new view of the universe and, and, and moreover the science that Hubble was capable of providing in terms of being able to tell us what things are made of at at great distances, and how they're moving, and how they're interacting with one another. All of those kinds of things gave us a broad new understanding of, of many of the fundamental mechanics taking place in the universe. James Webb Space Telescope is somewhere between 10 and 100 times more sensitive, better resolution, better light gathering capability than Hubble Space Telescope. What will this instrument tell us? The other thing is this. And this is kind of a difficult concept in just in terms of you know the astrophysics of the situation but objects that are farther and farther away because of the nature of the expansion of the universe they're moving faster Hmm. from us now you know this from doppler radar we can tell the direction of motion of a cloud whether it's rotating how fast it's rotating because of something called the doppler effect well the same thing applies to objects that are moving away from us in the universe. And the farther these galaxies are away, the faster they're moving away from us because of the Doppler shift, that same phenomenon that we see in weather phenomenon. And so we know that the light that comes to us is a lot longer wavelength than it was when it left. Well, what this does is it takes visible light, Hmm. light that we would see with our eyes, and it red shifts that visible light into the near infrared part of the spectrum. Hubble Space Telescope was not capable of seeing near-infrared. Hubble Space Telescope could only see in the optical wavelengths. Uh, I'm sorry, JWST, James Webb Space Telescope, it sees in the near-infrared part of the spectrum. And so it can see that light from those redshifted objects better than Hubble could without it being bigger or more sensitive or any of those kinds of things, just because it's looking in a different part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's like, it's like we're, we're having a cloth revealed from our eyes, from uh, our telescopes that could not see those wavelengths to now one that can. So that's, that's an additional um, improvement, so to speak, to look at the most distant galaxies out there and really get an idea about what's taking place in them.
1: And you worked with Hubble, so you have firsthand knowledge of like, okay, you know, we, we <coughs> got to experience this, but this is, the technology has improved that much, and so it was, it was worth the wait, uh, yeah. hopefully, I guess. Yeah,
0: I was extraordinarily <laughs> fortunate to the, uh, that my advisor at UNLV, uh, her name was Dr. Donna Weistrop, she was an instrument scientist on Hubble, wow. so she helped d- be able to design the capabilities of the first cameras that went up with Hubble Space Telescope, and because of that, she had proprietary guaranteed rights for some of the data coming back down. So I was able to, to work with her on those data, as well as other projects. But yeah, I got to learn a lot about Hubble and how it works and, and its capabilities, both pros and cons. If you remember the history, when Hubble first went up, it had, uh, it had some mirror issues, Yeah. right? So it, it had blurred vision. And this was a terrible thing. Uh, The the mirror had been ground to the wrong tolerances and a wrong shape, basically. And so it got up into space and it was myopic. It couldn't see the universe very well. It was blurry vision. So what they did is on a subsequent mission, they actually took facial optics, so to speak. They they (laughs) took corrective optics and they installed those corrective optics on the telescope. Wow. Which was great. It made it see sharply. And we started getting good images of things. But it cut its ability to be able to see in the ultraviolet and the infrared, which were initial capabilities of Hubble. Because of those corrective optics, it limited the wavelength regions in which Hubble was sensitive. So that's one of the reasons why uh, Hubble can't see those distant galaxies as well as James Webb Space Telescope, even if everything else was equal, just because it can't look into that kind of light that we need to see to see those important wavelengths coming from those distant galaxies.
1: And one thing that I guess is kind of hard to comprehend, like some people, you know, the way God works in mysterious ways is hard for us to, with our human minds to comprehend. You know, some of these images we're seeing that we're gonna take a look at in just a few minutes um, are I think from when I read are like a galaxy cluster as they would have been seen 6 billion years ago, which is hard to understand like, okay, how does that work? Why are we seeing something that
0: seems old, but it's new to us, Right. right? Imagine this. Imagine uh, you, you lived in, what, the 1800s or something. Now, please historians, don't pick on me about this. I'm just gonna make <laughs> up an analogy. But imagine you lived in the 1800s and you lived in California, and your cousin lived in New England. And you know th- they maybe took baby pictures of their children and what? So then they post that, and then there's a train that drives across the there's country. Not it's not Facebook back then. It's <laughs> not Facebook, right? You can't get instantaneous <laughs> feedback from people on the other side of the world. So, so you know, th- there's a train, and then it gets to a station in St. Louis, and then maybe it has to hop. Pony Express, and then there's a process <laughs> to get it across the country. Anyway, there's an there's a amount of time that takes place sure. for that letter to get to you. So maybe those photographs were taken uh, on a certain year, and maybe it took two years for those photographs to get to you. Well, you're seeing baby pictures, but really that child that's in the photograph, they're two years old now. Yeah. And I, and I have a two-year-old granddaughter. She's up running around and you know talking and doing all kinds of things, but you're seeing the picture of an infant. It's because of that travel time for that information to get to you. And that's what happens when we look deep into the universe. I hate to say that light speed is like the Pony Express, (laughs) but when you're talking about these kinds of distances, it really is. It takes light time to get to you. And so from those most distant objects, that light travel time equates, it can equate to billions of years. So when you finally get that photograph of the galaxy, you're seeing the light as that galaxy was when the light left, wow. which was maybe six billion years ago, maybe in some of these pictures, 13 billion years ago, wow. which is almost the age of the universe. And so we're seeing the most ancient light that we've ever seen, but what's arriving is a baby picture. Wow. It's, and that galaxy's grown up now. still hard to, to kind of
1: wrap our, our minds around it. So it's just, it's the, the mysteries only continue, which I mean, which is cool for in your, uh, field of astronomy. Um, so uh, let's take a look at some of these images and we're going to show these images. They're going to be on our um, on my Run the Race uh, Fitness and Faith Facebook page. Also we're going to put them up on the video on WTVM.com during this conversation. So uh, there's there's three images I want to take a look at. This first one is, I guess this is the first image released about a week ago by NASA uh, from this amazing telescope. And, and even like printing it off off a color printer, it doesn't it doesn't uh, show us the true like uh, amazement of these photos. So this one's it's like a it's a big star in the midst of a bunch of other stars. So w- what's the significance of something like this?
0: Right. So this is the very first photograph that was released by the James Webb Space Telescope. It was the one that was released a day earlier than they were going to release all the other pictures. This is the one that President Biden got on, and was commenting about, and all those kinds of things. I guess Bill Nelson, the director of NASA, was also on that on that uh, that broadcast. But they were talking about this image. And this image is what we know as a deep field image. And basically what it means is you're taking your telescope and you're intentionally pointing it at nothing. Because if you point it at something, whatever that something is is going to overwhelm the field. Yeah. Right? Because it's just going to be bigger, brighter, closer, all those kinds of things. So you're trying to find an area where you really don't know that there's anything out there, a blank spot. And the reason you do that is because then the telescope can focus on the most distant objects that are ultra faint Hmm. and ultra far away. So that's what this is. That trick was played by the Hubble Space Telescope a few times, right? So the, the operators of the Hubble Space Telescope I remember the story. The first time they were going to do this, it had to be the director of the Space Telescope Institute that agreed to take the telescope and point it at nothing. Because no, <laughs> no research proposal would, no ever, yeah, would never clear the committees to say, we're going to point it at nothing. Well, we can't waste the valuable How much time. money are we spending? Exactly. On. <laughs> all these kinds of considerations. So the director of the Space Telescope Institute said, yeah, yeah, I know. We're just, I'm going to override all that and we're just going to do this. So they pointed it at a region of the sky for 24 hours. And what they found with Hubble when they did that they found there was this whole tapestry of ultra distant galaxies that then at that time gave us a look at the most distant galaxies ever recorded. Well, obviously when they did that, they were like, oh, maybe that was a good idea to point it at nothing. So Hubble, then they reprised that process a few times and they had even more sensitive cameras. And so they got what they called an ultra deep field. Well, this first image released by the James Webb Space Telescope, it's kind of yet another uh, go at pointing it at nothing and seeing what we can find only they only did this for a few hours So not nearly as long as what what a Hubble Space Telescope had done like an entire day But the image that they garnered from that process Absolutely incredible in fact that image from James Webb has the the most distant galaxies that we have ever to this point been able to observe They are at a distance that's near the light travel time of the age of the universe. In other words, Nearly 14 billion years. Yeah, exactly. So so they're over They're over 13, they're somewhere between 13 and 13 and a half billion years wow. of light travel time. And we only think the universe itself is 13.8 billion years old. So these galaxies must have formed very rapidly in the earliest part of the universe to be present so that that light could have time to travel to us, which that itself is, for those of us who study galaxies, <laughs> they're on the inside. We're saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe there's already galaxies that have formed that far away. Yeah. Now they look very different than what we would consider you know, modern galaxies, or, sure. or maybe contemporary is a better word, galaxies that are of the age of the Milky Way after they've evolved and processed and, and look like they do now. They've grown up like a flower in the, in the flower bed, right? These are the first little buds that broke ground that look like a galaxy at the edge of the universe. And they're visible in that picture. But here's the most amazing thing of all to me about that photograph. In the middle of that photograph is another family of galaxies that's not nearly as far away. And that family of galaxies is called a galaxy cluster. That light left about four and a half billion years ago. So words, that light's about the age of the Earth. Yeah. Right? And so it's, it's old. It's traveled a long time. It's far away, but it's not nearly as far away as those other deep field galaxies. All right. So what happens, though, is when you put a group of galaxies together in the same part of the universe, they have so much gravity. The gravitational force of that cluster is so strong, it warps the space. Space itself is bent. Right. so now from these more distant galaxies as they're trying the light is trying to travel by that nearer group of galaxies it runs into a bent space and it has to warp around it that gives kind of a crystal ball effect hmm. it's almost like you're looking through a, 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 a lens and, and what it does is it creates arcs of light from things that would have been just a disc it makes them look like they're arced or bent and you can see all these arcs and bends in that first image released, that's called gravitational lensing. We didn't even understand that was a thing until Einstein and his uh, general theory of relativity showed that mass bends space. Yeah. And so this is a verification, first of all, of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Mass does bend space. But we can tell by how much space is bent. We can measure the mass of the galaxies in between. There is so much science in that one image that I could probably develop an entire semester long college course. To understand all of the phenomenon taking place in just the first image coming from James Webb Space Space Telescope, it sounds
1: like something out of uh, like a science fiction movie. That you know, it like you said, it's kind of hard to explain. And and like you when you were talking about how pointing it at nothing, if you think of like okay, like say the Bible is the universe, it'd be like opening up the Bible and just kind of randomly just putting your finger down on (laughs) one scripture and 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 you find something amazing, you know, uh, perhaps. And okay, this second image, uh, we're gonna start with this is like a, a star is born, not. Not the movie, right. *A Star Is Born*, but but this is uh, so it looks like kind of like um, I don't know some kind of um, mountain scape or tidal wave or of, of mostly kind of red and orange, mm-hmm. and then you've got obviously it looks like almost like a, the the sky above it, but but obviously this is the universe. It's not just uh, you're looking outside your window, perhaps.
0: Right, right, right. So let's let's make sure we understand this. That all of these images coming in they're in some sense false color. Right. So, Or, or I, I <laughs> should say this. If you watch like maybe Turner Classic movies, you see the colorized versions of old movies. Yes. It's like, well, they didn't have color cameras back then. but But the people that colorized those movies tried to do so in a manner that represented the true colors of those, you know, the clothing or the buildings sure. or the vehicles, whatever was in that movie. That's exactly what's happening with these images. So the colors we're seeing on these images are the scientists trying to represent what they believe are the accurate colors of, of those objects. So when you see the first of all, this image is called something like Cliffs of Carina or something uh-huh. like that is what they've been calling it. Nice. Because of what you said, it looks like a mountain range or something like that. But this is the edge of what we know as the Ada Carina Nebula. So let's, let's, let's break that down a little bit. A nebula is just a space cloud. So if you ever hear the word nebula, Or if you hear the word nebulous, that means something's cloudy, right? So the word nebula in space is just a cloud in outer space. Now, those aren't clouds like in in weather because they're not water vapor. They tend to be other things. They tend to be dust, and they tend to be hydrogen gas, largely. And so there's other things that are mixed in there, but dust and gas, mostly hydrogen. And the hydrogen gas glows with that kind of reddish color. Right. And so that's why those clouds look reddish. It's the scientists saying, well, this is where the hydrogen emission is coming from, and that would glow red. So that's why they're looking at, the, at that color. Behind that, there's kind of a blue glow that almost looks like a sky above mountains, sure, right? yeah, yeah. And that blue glow is actually what we call a reflection nebula. So when the light of a star reflects on a dusty cloud and then is scattered backwards, that cloud tends to look blue. And so when we see that blue color, we know that's a reflection nebula. And so you have, and actually when you look at this, it's kind of cool. You see stars in front of the, what looks like mountains. Then you see the mountains themselves, which is actually the edge of a, of a big cloud. And then you see that reflection behind, which is the blue part. When you look at it that way, you can actually begin to get that three-dimensional perception of what this thing is shaped like. You have these foreground stars, you have this giant cloud that looks like a mountain range, and then you have even further back here, other gases from that nebula that are reflecting starlight of stars you can't even see because they're inside the cloud. So that kind of, if you think about that, as you look at that image, it kind of peels it back into these multi-layers and you say, oh wow, yeah, that's really cool. That, I, I see what the three-dimensional structure is there, which, which that makes that a more interesting image. But that nebula, Ada Carina, we call it a star formation region. It's an emission nebula. It's a place where brand new baby stars are in the process of being born. Mm. And the gas itself, that thing that looks like mountains, that gas itself is kind of like the shells of, uh, of a chicken breaking out of the egg. Kind of coming, like it's, it's, the, it's the, the leftovers. It's the leftovers, exactly. So that's material that didn't get formed into stars, but those stars that are bursting into life on the inside they kick on what's called a stellar wind. We know the, the sun has a wind that blows and that occasionally brings a space weather here on the earth. We have aurora phenomenon and things like that. That comes from the sun's constant wind uh, blowing particles out into our solar system. Well, when baby stars first turn on, they have a very strong stellar wind. So eventually the stars themselves will clear out all that gas and dust and blow it away from them. But we know that they're brand new stars because they haven't done that yet. It's like a little chicken laying there with eggshell, you know, crumbles on it. And, it, you know, it's going to eventually shake off all those eggshells <laughs> and be a chicken. But it hasn't done that yet. Right. So that's that's one of the clues that tells us that this object is a, a place where young stars are hanging out shortly after being born. Yeah. And, and then not to, not to,
1: our last image is not a downer, but it's kind of a star dying. Right. And this is kind of looks like a, a like a little bit of an eyeball as well. But it's. Um, I guess maybe the die of God but it's it's got a star kind of right in the middle of that circle it's like the star is going away so I mean people I guess maybe don't understand that concept or maybe that that are not in the science field that (coughs) stars are born stars die I mean do they uh, do they have a lifespan like like humans I mean I, I don't know you know they do
0: they do and and how how long they live Depends on how fast and hard they live. <laughs> Maybe a little bit like humans as well. <laughs> if you kind of take it easy and take care of yourself, you might live a good long time. And the, and the smallest stars in our universe that use up their fuel in their core at a less aggressive rate tend to live a very long time. Then there are those stars that are just massive stars and they're burning through their fuel at a furious rate. Well, those stars, compared to other stars in the, in the universe, live a relatively short period of time and they die in the most explosive kind of death that we know about, which is a supernova explosion. Then there are those stars like our sun. They're kind of in the middle. They live a a, a decent, good, long lifetime. Then they finally do get the the end of their life cycle, and when they do, they let go their outer layers, and those outer layers of gases expand, and they expand into what's called a red giant star, but then after that oscillates for a while, they let go of the whole thing. And so all of the gases that are in our sun right now will one day expand out into a, a multiple shell uh, cloud of gas. We call that a planetary nebula. In the center of that planetary nebula is the, the nuclear fusion core of, of a star like our sun. That's called a white dwarf. And so it's done being a star, but it's still really, really hot. And it's gonna stay hot and bright for a long time. It's like like an ember out of the fire. The fire might be out, but don't put your finger on that thing because it's still really hot, right? Well, so this white dwarf then lives on at the center of this expanding cloud for a good long time. That is called a planetary nebula. And the photograph you're describing, that third photograph is a planetary nebula. It's a star that was like the sun that reached the end of its life cycle Mm and its outer layers are expanding off in multiple shells that give you kind of that face. It almost looks like you know, a, a head or a face or an eyeball, yeah, yeah. something like that. And then down on the inside, you can see that power plant for the star, which is revealed. You couldn't see that before because there was a star around it, but now in this expanding uh, phenomenon called a planetary nebula, you see the white dwarf engine that drove that star for its entire life cycle. That's the white dwarf. That's the thing that's down at the inside.
1: So we, we knew about this, but this has kind of given us that front row seat, perhaps, right?
0: Yeah, so, so the, the James Webb Space Telescope is not photographing a new object in this case. We knew about this object, but we've never had the kind of clarity and depth and detail of this object, which, by the way, is known, it's known as the Southern Ring Nebula. We've never seen the Southern Ring Nebula in this kind of detail. And some of the things that it reveals, and again, it reveals the chemistry. We see where the hydrogen is. We see other gases like oxygen that are at a much higher temperature. They are a different color represented in this image as kind of the blues and and some of the purples and things. And so you see the combinations of those colors are telling us about different chemistry within that cloud. So even though, yeah, it's a beautiful picture, it looks like a piece of art. You can hang it in your office and <laughs> be right. like, I don't know what this is. It just looks cool and I like it. So there's, there, it's behind my desk. <laughs> but, but when a, an astronomer looks at this thing, they can see, oh, okay, now I see what's happening. I see the hydrogen distribution. I see the, the fact that other gases are ionized to a high, high rate. And so this is a really hot phenomenon taking place. I can kind of see the morphology or what we call the structure of the uh, of the object which is all the ripples and the layers and the bubbles expanding out and it gives us a much much better understanding to allow us to model these kinds of objects better with computer simulations to help us recreate what we're seeing in our images that gives us a better understanding of the overall physics taking place to generate an object like this in the first place.
1: Yeah, and the James Webb Telescope, like you use the word understanding, these images kind of help answer some of those questions for astronomers, for scientists, for people that are just, you know, kind of regular folks like me. Um, and, and for you, you know, um, I'm sure you've had a long time since you were younger, had a passion for science, but also, uh, you know, getting baptized uh, when you were uh, 17 years old. and and, uh, you know, being a part of, well, you're as a preteen, in fact, getting baptized, but then you joined music ministry at 17. So your faith journey started early as well. So, you know, when you, when you have that science and faith kind of parallel with each other, did you have a lot of questions about, you know, faith growing up, especially, you know, um, having that um, kind of science and you've kind of, people were maybe in one ear saying, hey, uh, this doesn't make sense what you guys are saying about God. Did you have a lot of questions yourself? Yeah, I did, you know,
0: I, at some point, in your faith journey, you have to make the faith your own, right? And maybe if, if you came to faith as a person who grew up outside the church, maybe that's an easier transition, quite honestly. For, for those of us who grew up in church as children, at some point, it's got to stop being mom and dad's faith. And it's got to become your own faith. Sure. And, and I think very reasonably, there are questions that you have uh, around that time. And You're looking for proof, kind of yeah, like science, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, so you're, you're being a person at that point who's investigating and say, well, wait a minute, I heard this in church, but I'm hearing things in school, and how do I justify or rectify that? And, and so first of all, you have to have a desire to do that, I think. Sure. I, I think that's just part of, you know, if, you, if you're listening to the Holy Spirit speak to your heart, you're going to have that desire to say, I know this is real because I feel this connection with God. So therefore, let me look at what I'm seeing in the real world. and I'm only seeing real world as it in, in, outside of a spiritual sense. The physical world is a better word. Let me, let me take a look at what I'm seeing in the physical world and see how that justifies or rectifies with what I understand and what I am experiencing in my, in my faith relationship. Sure. And so that's kind of how my journey went. And, and I understand that faith journeys are different for every person. It's why we have this you know, plethora of ideas about God and about faith. But for me, um, something very fundamental happened uh, when I was fairly young, even after I'd already been baptized. You still still have to have that kind of transition to make faith your own. I was in a a middle school or junior high science class and I had a substitute teacher and the substitute teacher happened to be the wife of our youth minister at church. And so she came in and was, was teaching the science of the day and she said something just kind of offhandedly. She said, you know, I actually go to church and it's amazing to me every time I come in and teach this level of science and talk about the, the origin of, uh, uh, of the earth and of species and things, I'm always amazed at how it kind of just lines up with what the Bible says and, how, and, and the chronology of the way things happened in, in Genesis. But also, let's not forget the Older Testament than Genesis, which is Job right? Job is actually a book that came before, Gen- was written before Genesis. And there are many testaments to how uh, God's physical creation came into being in Job as he's asking all these questions. Yeah. Of the Lord. Why, why? And, yeah. And the Lord's answering, Hey, were you there when I did this? And were you were there when I did this? And, and, and all of those statements back from the Lord are explanations in a way of, of how it was created. So she, she put that seed in my mind. And then I went on a personal journey to kind of investigate that. And I found very satisfactorily that I see uh, testaments of of creation in the Bible and things that we understand about the manner in which the earth formed and then changed into what we see today that are very consistent
1: yeah. and you know in, in astronomy i 'm sure you 've had your journey you know decades in the making of you do certain things, have certain events that are you know, monumental for you. And you know, I know you've talked about going on mission trips to Mexico and to Haiti. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been to both those places as well, mission trips. Haiti was, was life-changing for me. Um, going on trips like that, uh, as mission trips and having a church mission there, did that change you and change your, your faith journey as well?
0: You know, I mean, I think this is true. I think if you're a person of faith and you go on a mission trip, God has more for you on that mission trip than you're going to be able to provide for those other people. You're there to provide things for those other people and to help them on their journey. But I think if you're open about that, the Lord is getting you out of your comfort zone right. and showing you a whole variety of things about the world and about people that, that grow you as a person, they grow you in faith. And, uh, and, and certainly that was the case for me. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this story, though. I, I was able, while I was in Haiti, I made a few trips to Haiti, but I got asked to speak at one of their high schools, and they wanted me to come in and talk about science. They said, oh, you're a scientist. Oh, well, come teach us about space. <laughs> and I got to talk to those folks in Haiti, uh, those students in high school, and I told them this, which I, I believe with all sincerity is true, that there's gonna be a Haitian astronaut at some point. Right, there's gonna be the first Haitian to go to space. And so I'm, I'm in this, this schoolhouse, which was, you know, uh, Understandably, if you've been to Haiti, you understand that economically, they're in a very underprivileged situation. It's a difficult situation. But yet when I look at what they've written up on their kind of primitive chalkboards in the class, it's all the same math that I learned in my math classes. And, And the important point about that is, that science then is a possible potential bridge for them to go out of whatever that room, that rundown schoolhouse is in Haiti and actually be Uh, a scientist. It's possible. And and have a career. It's absolutely possible and the bridge itself is that science that they're learning. So what I wanted to encourage them is to say there's gonna be a first Haitian astronaut. Somebody and these and these kids didn't even realize that people were like like going around the earth right now there's people above their head. (laughs) You know the space station the International Space Station has been continually inhabited since the year 2000. Yeah. So for anybody under 22 years old there's been an astronaut above your head the whole time you've been alive, yeah. right? And so I'm, I'm telling them this message and they didn't realize that. And so they, and they said, well, can, can, we go, can we go to space? Can we participate in this? And that's when I began to say, there's gonna be a first Haitian astronaut. That person might be in this room. Yeah, And so it's one of the things I like to do in my career at Space Science Center with Columbus State University. I have that same message for the, for the children in the schools of Columbus and all the surrounding areas that come to see us, to say, listen, space is fun. Yes, of course space is fun. You get to think about black holes and galaxies running into each other and things that are almost infinitely far away. It's an amazing subject, but it's also a path that you can have as a career. You can work in space, whether it's you know the space industry, you're an engineer, you're working on systems on the ground, or you're, you're helping train astronauts uh, to go do the things that they are gonna do, or maybe there's gonna be a first astronaut from Columbus, Georgia. Yeah. And that kid might be at the Space Science Center this morning, or they may have already graduated from both high school in Columbus and Columbus State University, because I have over you, a you dozen-
1: people that have kind of, now that you've been there 18 years, you've had some, some success stories, we right? Yeah, we have.
0: We have over a, uh, a dozen people who are out there working in the industry, who are kids that grew up right here in Columbus, Georgia. They're working as flight controllers, operations controllers at the Marshall Space Flight Center, Uh, payload communications. They're talking with the astronauts every day uh, about what experiments they're working on. Uh, I have one student who, um, he worked on the Mars Opportunity Rover team. And so he got to figure out what pictures the Mars Opportunity Rover is gonna take. Think about that. Hmm. He's, he's a kid growing up, you know, making paper rockets at the Space Science Center a number of years ago. I have pictures of him on my computer, a little kid, paper rocket in his hand. And now he, he worked on the Opportunity Rover team. He got to study lunar soils in college. And now he's working at Marshall Space Flight Center with the astronauts. So so there's gonna be one of these kids, they're gonna jump in and, and, and become an astronaut someday, right? And so that that's the cool thing is that I can talk in a manner to say, it's not just fun. It is fun, but it's not just fun. You can pursue these things all the way to a career where you're having the most amazing adventures in your career that you can imagine with the space program. It's really cool.
1: And, you know, um, at the Coca-Cola Space Science Center here, again, in Columbus, Georgia, we're just south of Atlanta, uh, what what kind of questions do you get from folks? I mean, young and old, I mean, is there, is there something in particular that people are most interested in? I mean, I'm sure you're talking about certain things like right now, the James Webb Space Telescope is top of mind, but what are some things that people maybe, you know, wanna know most about?
0: So, <laughs> it's funny, there's two things. The one might be kind of, the first might be kind of obvious, the second one, just always makes me shake my head, but it's, <laughs> it's fun anyway. So the first one is, people want to know about black holes. Okay. Th- that is just, that phenomenon is so bizarre and has so many weird consequences with it that it, that it inspires their imagination. Yeah, And so they, they always, almost daily, we get a question about a black hole and can we travel through one? <laughs> is there one in the neighborhood? Is it gonna run into the earth? You know, how does, a, how does a black hole form? How big are they? How small are they? You know, all these kinds of questions, right? So lots of black hole questions. The second one is, and this is mostly from students, which this just amazes me, is that why is Pluto not a planet? <laughs> what happened to poor Pluto? Now, listen, ladies and gentlemen, the International Astronomical Union made the decision sure. to reclassify Pluto as a dwarf planet in the year 2006. Yeah. So it's been a minute. <laughs> right. And so so what I get, not know, a character in Disney world. Exactly. I yeah, well, yeah. that's right. So when I get kids <laughs> coming in and they're asking me these questions about Pluto, like it happened yesterday and they're angry about it. It's, it's amazing to me because they weren't even born when that decision happened. Right. So it's always kind of funny that they want to defend Pluto. They're, why, why were people picking on Pluto and got kicked out of the planet club? They, <laughs> sometimes they ask me this, well, where's Pluto now? It's like well, No, it's still there. It, it's, it's right where it was before. It didn't get moved or anything. Got a demotion? Yeah, <laughs> but and, but, it, but it opens up a door to be able to talk about sure, science sure. and 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 classifications and you know why we name things certain names and and, and so it's just really the name change you know that, that really bothers them. But yeah, they, they have lots of fun questions about Pluto. I, th- I thought
1: you were going to say that uh, you know is it really pronounced Uranus?
0: <laughs> yeah, this this is a Wes Carroll question. Yes. so you know uh, Wes likes to discuss the planet uranus and as many forms of the pronunciation as yeah possible. If, you, if you pause your yeah, yeah, uranus you know we can we can Uran- pronounce it many uranus, different ways yes. whatever makes wes happy you know and wes Carroll's my uh my podcast partner but uh, you can say it really fast yeah, uranus 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 <laughs> there's I, i've discovered there's really no way to say the name of that planet that doesn't make a sixth grader chuckle <laughs> so it's just you know it came down to us from the ancient times i, I can't change things so sometimes I just go, oh, rain Uranus, all right, so, just, <laughs> and just move on from there. And one last question. Um, so
1: with the James Webb Telescope, now that we've got that and, and space travel, so I, are we gonna see some more images in the next few weeks and months? I mean, is this gonna be a trickle that's gonna, like, we're gonna see some things that are just gonna knock our socks off even more?
0: Yes, is the <laughs> answer, right? We have just begun. These few images that were released they were in the hands of scientists a few weeks ago they were hand picking the ones ah. that they thought you know would, would like most surprise us right or be the most you know beautiful representations of the data they have but they have all come from actual science programs and now the floodgate of that science is being opened up and i would say week by week by week we're just going to see more and more awesome images from james webb space telescope because i remember what hubble was first repaired and that's what we were seeing from Hubble. And, and that, that's, well, we still have amazing phenomenal images coming in from Hubble Space Telescope more than 20 years on, yeah. right? so, so that So that stream is still continuing. How long will James Webb go? One of the amazing things about the mission is they managed to get it into the exact position that needed to be in using less fuel than they had budgeted, which means they have more fuel on board to control that telescope for a longer period of time. So the lifetime of James Webb Telescope went from its original 10 year projection to maybe now as many as 20 years, Mm. maybe even more. How long will JWST be up there giving us fantastic images? We don't know the answer to that. So it could be a decades long adventure where we just get phenomenal information about our universe on maybe a weekly basis. Let me say one thing too, which is among this first group of research, there's, there's something that's kind of flown under the radar. We kind of get fixated on these beautiful images that sure. can, you know, we could frame them up and put them in our office as artwork. But there was also a set of spectra. In other words, they took the light coming from an object, they ran it through a prism which broke it up, and they actually see different wavelengths and different intensities. And what that can tell us about is what those things out there are made, are made out of. And one of the very, very interesting things is they found water, strong signatures of water in the atmosphere of a planet around another star. Hmm. Now let's just pause there for a minute. If we were gonna find life somewhere in the universe, the first indication that we might have of that life is a planet with water. We now have one. Now this is not the first planet that we've had signatures of water from, but these are clear strong and highly resolved water signatures from the atmosphere of that exoplanet. An exoplanet is an extrasolar planet, a planet around another star. So that is the kind of thing that James Webb's going to be capable of that Hubble never could do. To actually peer and get clear spectra of the atmosphere of a planet around a distant star, that's a new capability. What is that going to tell us? I don't know. Yeah. But I'm excited to find out. Yeah,
1: but we're very excited. I mean, I think it's just amazing, and, and, and your passion for it, for your passion for science and astronomy, and also faith. I mean, it's a uh, you know it's refreshing because, like you said, you know, we talked about how sometimes you know the uh, the scientific field and, and the faith field are, are at odds. But you know, hopefully, we've. Kind of being able to, uh, you know, uh, open up about the, having that conversation. So, Dr. Sean Cruzen, thank you so much uh, for your time today, and uh, and, and you, I'll let you get back to some of the uh, high schoolers learning about black holes and uh, exactly. uh, Uranus and uh, Pluto, those kind of things. Right? Exactly. Yep.
0: We're, we're doing a robotics camp this week too, by the way, which is uh, uh, it's co-sponsored by Pratt and Whitney. And so they're down there learning about robots, which that's the way we're going to be exploring our solar system primarily, is sending robots out to those other planets. So maybe these will be future robot explorers of the solar system.
1: Perhaps. All right. Thanks very much, Dr. Kruzan. Appreciate it. Dr. Cruzen, awesome guy, Uh, very intelligent and uh, very um, impassioned. Uh, about not only um, his faith in God, but also science and astronomy. And uh, really, you can hear that in his voice from our conversation. You know, I love science as well. And, uh, you know, I love weird science from the the 1980s movie. And uh, science, um, you know, I guess in its sense, uh, explores the the function and behavior of a physical universe. And we live in this world. We live on Earth. Uh, we live here for however long, you know, 70, 100 years, or whatever it is, and then and then we're gone. And uh, but we also have the spiritual realm. We live in that, and uh, there's there's several kinds of folks. There's there's atheists who say that God is not necessary to explain how all this came to be. Right? They don't believe in a God or anything like that. There is the uh, the naturalist. Uh, we talked about it a little bit in our conversation. The naturalist says God is not necessary because they because they can explain a few physical processes, and that may be you know I read is kind of akin to a person saying a car doesn't need a designer because they can describe how a few mechanical things work in a car, uh, whereas Christianity. Um, the Christians focus on an infallible word from the Creator who was there in the beginning. That's what we believe. And we believe that God is spaceless, timeless, uh, immensely intelligent and powerful uh, there at the start. And He is the one that created uh, all things. It talks in uh, Isaiah 45, 7 that I form light and create darkness. And so I guess the big question is, do we know better than God and my question my answer to that is no we don't know better than God but again that's a personal belief for everybody um, as you listen to this podcast you may uh, you may not be Christian you may be Christian but uh, and we respect everybody's beliefs but uh, for me I believe you know God uh, created the heavens and the earth and uh, I'm certainly glad for that. And, uh, again, thank uh, Dr. Cruzen for uh, swinging on by. Uh, I know he's been busy at the Coca-Cola Space Science Center in Columbus, Georgia. If you're ever in this area, I definitely uh, recommend going to visit that. Uh, just some amazing stuff they've got there for, for people of all ages, not just kids and teenagers, but also adults. And Dr. Cruzen told me, you know, I, I told that quick story at the beginning about my dad being in the medical science profession as a doctor, and I wanted to steer clear of that, went into uh, broadcast journalism tv news he said that he actually went to school at first for journalism and then obviously detoured off to uh, science and astronomy now to our uh, final segments of this podcast as we continue to have that friday food for thought that we're going to continue on and have those short episodes giving you some insight on an issue of the day but we still have our uh, parting gift some uh, quick inspiration uh, a quote for you and uh, also our closing prayer All right, Dr. Kruzan gave us uh, a few scriptures uh, that, d- that deal with science, but there's one in particular I found that came from Hebrews 11.3. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made of, out of things that are visible. So uh, faith, uh, sometimes, you know, um, it's it's— it's not by sight uh, things that you can't see you can't I mean you feel God you have the Holy Spirit that I believe and God is everywhere but maybe you know you can't physically see him you know you can't touch him he he's in heaven and so but we can have that close relationship like a friend with him on this earth so he's not visible by by you know our human standards but by faith we understand according to the Bible that the universe created by the Word of of God, so uh, that speaks about it in the Bible, and I believe it. And uh, closing now in prayer, dear God, just thank you for uh, for creating us, for creating this universe. So we just thank you for science and all the amazing things, the stars and the, the telescopes and the, the scientists and the uh, just discoveries that continue to be made on a daily and yearly basis uh, across our world today. That uh, we're just amazed to see uh, the galaxy and the space. All the stars and planets and things that uh, you created for us, and that we are able to see that uh, even better with the technology that you helped uh, man create, and uh, we just thank you for uh, uh, just your grace and your mercy uh, for us to have this universe that was created, um, you know, uh, more than a dozen uh, billion years ago. It's just hard to fathom, Lord God. We just thank you for for your or your creation. And uh, for that we can glorify you through uh, the universe and everything that you've given us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, science and faith—they can coexist, according to Dr. Cruzen and myself, and so many other people. And so, uh, you know, we can we can be passionate and love both, right? And uh, and still be a Christian, still be a scientist. And uh, they don't have to fly in the face of each other. So thanks again for joining us for the Run the Race podcast. You can listen to any of the previous 116 episodes on WTVM.com slash podcast. We're on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and uh, all those places. And uh, tell your friends about it. Use hashtag Run the Race. And uh, also check out uh, Dr. Cruzen and Wes Carroll on Made of Stars their uh soon to be award-winning podcast as well and so i hope you guys have a uh, wonderful rest of your week god bless